This show is made possible by the support of the members and donors to the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, Le Show, The Progressive Magazine, The Onion Radio News, Counterspin, Ring of Fire, and Real Time with Bill Maher with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. Thousands of unemployed auto workers in Northern California believe they may have a future building electric cars. Their hopes center around a new deal between the giant car maker Toyota and the far smaller electric car company Tesla Motors. Central to that deal, bringing new life to a closed Toyota plant. NPR's Richard Gonzalez reports from the Bay Area city of Fremont. For 25 years, Toyota ran a unique joint venture with General Motors called New United Motor Manufacturing Inc., or NUMI for short. That partnership ended when GM went bankrupt, and in April, Toyota shuttered the plant in Fremont, leaving about 4,700 workers jobless and looking for a miracle. Now some of them think they have found it. This week, a small group of religious, community, and labor leaders praised the news of the Toyota-Tesla partnership. This is the Reverend Carol Bean. And as we ask Toyota to encourage and invest in these workers once again, uh, we give thanks and celebration for what has been. And in this anxious time, we pray for what will be, that all 4,700 workers will come back to work. The news came from Toyota's president, Akio Toyota, who promised to invest $50 million in Tesla. The fledgling electric car maker will, in turn, buy the old Numi plant, a facility where Toyota himself had once worked. I'm extremely happy that the DNA of car making that the Numi team developed over 25 years of production there will live on in an industry for the future. The impetus for the partnership came about six weeks ago when Toyota visited Tesla CEO Elon Musk at his home in Southern California. The two men hit it off, especially after they went for a test drive in a two-seat Tesla Roadster with Toyota at the wheel. Not only was I impressed by Tesla technology, but I also felt their energy. Simply put, I felt the wind, the wind of the future. Toyota and Tesla will collaborate on an electric car, and at the same time, Tesla will use the Numi plant to build its new electric family-sized sedan called the Model S, says CEO Elon Musk. And Model S is initially only about a 20,000 vehicle production, so we're going to be occupying a little corner, but there's a lot of room for growth, and long-term we certainly intend to use the full capacity of Numi. Car industry experts say the deal gives Tesla a huge lead in mass-producing an electric car, and for $50 million, Toyota gets access to Tesla's powertrain technology. But Toyota may get something more, some goodwill from the public when it really needs it, says Jeremy Anwill, the CEO of Edmunds.com. I think they really score a lot of political points by keeping that plant going. They may not say that, but my suspicion is that's their driving motivation, and I think that's a very smart move. UC Berkeley labor expert Harley Shaken says there's tremendous potential for Toyota at a time when it's fallen behind Nissan and Chevrolet in the electric car market. In the Fremont plant, 
the old Corolla line, which works so well, is still there, that would mean a rapid transition is possible to building an electric Corolla or even a hybrid Corolla in Fremont. That could be a game changer for the industry and certainly for jobs. Tesla CEO Elon Musk says he plans to start production of the Model S within two years and hire up to 1,000 workers in Fremont. And he said he wouldn't encourage or oppose the workers organizing a union. Lake Chad was bigger than Israel less than 50 years ago. Today its surface area is less than a tenth of its earlier size. Mid forecast the lake could disappear altogether within 20 years. Climate change and overuse have put one of Africa's mightiest lakes in mortal danger. And the lives of the 30 million people who depend on its waters is hanging by a thread as a result. Lake Chad has experienced shrinkage. Four countries, actually uh, Chad, Niger, Cameroon, and Nigeria, and four others, those first four border Lake Chad, four others, Central African Republic, Algeria, Sudan, and Libya, share the lake's hydrological basin. Lake Chad has experienced shrinkage, says Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. I want to warn the world about this imminent disaster, he says. All right, thank you, Muammar. Villages that used to be thriving lakeside ports are now stranded miles from the water and have been swallowed by the advancing Sahara Desert. Fishers and farmers are struggling to survive. Biodiversity, too, has been hit by the lakes. No real evidence here why it's happening, though, so we'll, we'll take that as a provisional news of the warm. But now, coral reef fish can undergo a personality change in warmer water according to an intriguing new study suggesting that climate change may make some species more aggressive. As evidence, I would cite Ari Emanuel. Experiments with two species of young damselfish on Australia's Great Barrier Reef have shown for the first time that some reef fish are either consistently timid or consistently bold, and that these individual differences are more marked as water temperatures rise, according to Science Daily. A slight lift of just one or two degrees may have only a small effect on some fish, but the behavior of others can be transformed, leading them to become up to 30 times more active and aggressive. The idea that fish have personalities may seem surprising at first. Hey, I'm still getting used to the fact that people do. So sue me. But now we know that personality is common in animal populations, and that this phenomenon may have far-reaching implications for understanding how animals respond to ecological and environmental challenges, says Dr. Peter Biro of the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences, who led the study. Our results also suggest that in temperature variations are much more significant than we thought in the way they affect the behaviors of individual animals. 
Individual variations in activity and boldness can affect food acquisition and counter rates with predators and even the likelihood of an individual being captured by harvesting gear. We observed that most of the individuals in our experiments were very responsive to changes in temperature, dramatically increasing their levels of activity, boldness, and aggressiveness as a function of increases of only a few degrees of temperature. Now, fish do experience such temperature fluctuations during the course of a normal day. But they all became more active when the water was warmed in a tank where the fish were studied. So I'm becoming up to 30 times more active, bold, and aggressive. So just be warned, ladies and gentlemen. The next salmon you eat may bite back. A warning sign. I missed the good part that I realized. I started looking and the bubble burst. I started looking for excuses Come on in I've gotta tell you what a state I'm in I've gotta tell you in my loudest tones That I started looking for a warning sign. The planet that we're living on is shifting beneath us, that it's already changed enough, global warming no longer a future threat but a present reality, that in certain ways it's quite a different place. The atmosphere holds about 5% more water vapor than it did 40 years ago. Uh, that means that we get deluge and downpour in unprecedented fashion. It's the 100-year flood every three or four years a lot of places. The ocean is 30% more acid than it was. We're living now through the warm, we've just come through the warmest global winter ever, and it looks like 2010 will be the hottest year ever recorded. Uh, uh, it's a different planet already, and different planets require different habits if we're going to live on them. And so that's kind of what the book's about. Yeah, the book is called Making a Life on a Tough New Planet. That's the subtitle. We're, we're no, the earth as we knew it is gone, you're right. You, you have a lot of real stark sentences like that, and I know that was intentional. You're a writer. You talk about writing in the beginning and in the intro here uh, of your book, trying to deliver body blows, and you, mm. you throw a lot of punches here. The earth we knew is gone. And then there's another thing that you said, Bill McKibben. You said uh, uh, you talked about the pace of change being so fast that it used to be politicians and even scientists would say, this is something our grandchildren, we've got to do for our grandchildren. We have to act to save our grandchildren. Forget about our grandchildren. This is us, you know. Uh, you said we, we, our parents should have thought about that's this. That's right. <laughs> you know, we're, uh, we're, we're, if they'd done what they should have done 20 years ago, we'd be in somewhat better shape now. Why have things gone faster than uh, predicted? That's well, another theme here. Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, uh, when I wrote The End of Nature 21 years ago, we knew, A, that human beings were putting a lot of carbon in the atmosphere because we were burning coal and gas and oil. And we knew that the molecular structure of CO2 trapped heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. So it stood to reason that things were going to heat up. The only question we didn't know was how quickly. Being human, I think, we hoped that it would take a while because then it would be somebody else's problem. 
but the Earth turned out to be more finely balanced than we anticipated. So far, we've raised the temperature about one degree Celsius, more or less. 20 years ago, we thought eh, probably that wouldn't be enough to cause huge change, but we were wrong. Things like the very rapid melt of Arctic sea ice in the summer of 2007 shocked a lot of scientists. I got calls that summer from people I've known for many years. They'd always been worried. Now they were panicked. Um, and pretty much any major physical feature of the planet that you name, the same kind of chaotic change is underway. When you look around and see it, the, the ground really is shifting beneath our feet. Now, it can be a lot worse than this. Just because we've crossed this threshold doesn't mean there aren't thresholds to cross. And so we've still got enormous work to do to slow down the amount of carbon we pour into the atmosphere. But we also better start figuring out how we're going to live on a uh, degraded Earth. Uh, we've crossed this threshold, you say, Bill McKibben. Is this the tipping point threshold that we there's, used to hear people talk about? There's going to be many tipping points or several tipping points along the way. There are some systems we've clearly perturbed too far for them to effectively recover. It looks like Arctic sea ice is one of those. Uh, we don't want to go further enough down this road that we, you know, deeply damage the monsoon rain system that feeds billions of people across Asia. Uh, we don't want to raise sea levels any more than we have to. These are the next sets of tipping points that we're creeping up on. And what are the consequences in the here and now of this uh, well, deterioration? You know, the one attempt so far to kind of count up bodies was... Uh, uh, Kofi Annan's think tank, the Global Humanitarian Forum, did a study last summer that I think found about 300,000 people a year now dying of the effects of global warming distributed across many different causes, but things like mosquito-borne disease that's on the rise. Though that's frankly a trivial number compared to what we're going to face uh, if we don't get things under control very soon. Because what we're talking about is the, the basic physical stability of the planet. Uh, uh, the researchers in the last year have warned that we could face easily shortfalls in grain yields of 30 and 40 percent because it turns out that our main crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, are at least as adapted as we are to the climatic regime that they grew up in, evolved in. Uh, uh, so we're playing literally with fire. And so if that happens, I mean, a lot more people will starve to death. Yeah, and a lot more people will be in the most basic kind of conflict over resources. Uh, even, you know, I mean, people who, people who we assign in this society to think about risk, uh, think a lot about this kind of stuff now. The insurance industry and, frankly, the Pentagon. Uh, who have begun, for better or for worse, uh, to understand that the biggest source of conflict and chaos in the century to come isn't going to be, you know, terrorism from fundamentalists. It's going to be people on the move in search of enough food and water. India just finished building a 2,500-mile-long wall along its border with Bangladesh. Why? Because as the Bay of Bengal rises, there's closing in on 200 million people in Bangladesh, and a lot of them are going to need to find someplace else to go. But that it's, wall's going to trap them in. It's not like India has a lot of vacant real estate, you know, in which to absorb a, a, a flood of people. 
um, um, things like that around the globe are now moving beyond the realm of the theoretical into the very much here and now. But even as they do that, the odd thing here living in the United States, if you read the opinion polls, is that more and more Americans don't believe that global warming either exists or if it exists, that it's a man-made or man-contributed to phenomena. Well, let's think how, how that could possibly be. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that the extraction of fossil fuel from the ground, its refinement and sale turned out to be the single biggest industry in the history of humanity and the most profitable. ExxonMobil made more money each of the last three years than any company in the history of money. Uh, that's, you know, $40 billion a year, 40 billion reasons a year to do your best to delude, disinform, and, of course, when they do that, they're playing uh, to a receptive audience. Not really very many of us are all that eager to change in, in real ways. You know, we'd like to continue floating along in the uh, uh, bubble that we've been in. And that's the Sarah Palin bubble, too, the, the drill baby drill bubble. <laughs> exactly right. And ExxonMobil spend an inordinate amount of money to uh, do PR to tell people that this Exxon is... Mobil, uh you know, it, California this fall will face uh, an attempt to repeal its global warming law that's being funded by uh, two big Texas oil companies. That's where all the money's coming from. Um, you know, the coal industry spent a couple of hundred million last year uh, uh, on global warming propaganda of one kind or another. The, the scary thing is that they don't have to spend all that much compared to the amount of money that they're making. Our political system is so corroded with money that you can make a relatively small investment and the payoff is unfortunately enormous. Stay out super late tonight Picking apples, making pies Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us, put half away In a fake empire we're half awake in a fake empire Tiptoe through our shiny city With our diamond slippers on Do our gay ballet nights Bluebirds on our shoulders We're half awake in a fake empire the Kansas State Supreme Court today has upheld the right of a school district there to present both global warming and the biblical Armageddon as legitimate theories about the end of the world. A documentary made about the controversial Kansas school district will be airing on PBS tonight. In this Kansas City school district, kids are getting a taste of both sides of the story. Teachers here say they use a variety of methods not to give students a definitive answer about how the world will come to a horrific end, but to frame the question. Now at the forefront of the debate are Joseph Bowers of the Public Education Initiative, which opposed the ruling, and Anita Conover of Armageddon in the classroom. Hello. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Bowers, what's so wrong with kids being exposed to both views of how they'll die? Well, first of all, it's a, you know, it's a clear violation of the separation of church and state. If you mm. want to teach your kids that they're going to be burnt alive when God pours his fourth bowl of wrath upon the earth, 
you know, that's fine. Uh, just do it in the church or at home. Uh, now, I understand, Ms. Conover, you think differently about this. Yes. Polls show that more than 80% of Americans believe that God exists and he has an intelligent plan for how we will all die. Yes, I can understand that can be confusing for a child. Yes. That's why we say pose both theories simply as questions. Are we doomed because of our moral sins or because of our pollution? Hmm. And let the children answer for themselves. Well, the documentary has some very interesting interviews with the kids themselves. Let's take a look. But some people think that the world's going to end by, the world's going to heat up and we're all going to be baked alive. But other people think a monster with seven heads is going to come out and rip us apart. I'm still deciding. There's a lot of great exercises. I'll have them all pretend that they're being burned alive by the cleansing fires of heaven. And then I'll have them pretend that they're being swept away by a tsunami, which is washing away all of our major cities. And so it's a lot of fun. Well, as we it's can clearly see from this clip, this school is spending valuable class time on religious theories, meaning that there's less time to teach these kids about how the seas are going to be acidified by pollution. Excuse me, the seas will turn to um, water. No, kids need to know just, just this. Please hold on. In the uh, 50s, most schools taught kids that mankind would be brought to an end either by God or by skin-melting nuclear bombs. There is room for more than one idea in our classrooms. Yes, I understand. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank, thank you. you. Now, next up, MTV scientists have discovered a previously unfilmed species of asshole. The end's not near. It's You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. One of the first suggestions you make is the fundamental one that we need to move beyond growth. Get used to not growing. So, 1972 saw the publication of the most read environmental book, or at least the most bought environmental book of all time. Uh, 30 million copies in 30 languages of that book, The Limits to Growth, a team of MIT computer scientists. And many people read it, and many people mocked it or reacted violently against it. Uh, 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 the truth is, that's what we've reached. That's where we are. We're running up against precisely what they predicted at about the time they predicted, that the scale of our enterprise is now bumping up against the scale of the planet. When you melt the Arctic, that's a bad sign. Okay, And that's going to be the most difficult trend, not the transition from solar, from, you know, oil to solar power. The difficult transition is going to be the mental one from a world where the answer to every problem is growth to a world where we have to mature and accept the idea that we're going to have to uh, 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 focus on resilience, on stability, on security instead. And if you think it's going to be hard here, 
I mean, the place where it's going to be just wrenching, painful, bitter, is in those places in the world that haven't yet had their fair share of growth, uh, well, the let's developing talk, world. Yeah, Bill McKibben, let's talk about that, because that's uh, what you call the justice deficit. And mm-hmm. there seems to be two aspects to the justice deficit. One is the fact that uh, the third world countries haven't been able to enjoy the growth that we have. If everyone had a fridge and air conditioning and a car like we have in the United States, you know, the earth would be melting even faster. And the second justice deficit is those people, masses of people, majority of people in the world suffer more from global warming than those in the north do. There's an almost linear relationship, an inverse relationship between how much damage you're doing and how quickly you're going to suffer the consequences. So you go to Bangladesh, you can even measure how much carbon Bangladesh produces. I mean, the bicycle rickshaw is how people get around. And yet the countries, you know, uh, uh, it's submerging from one end, the glaciers that feed the rivers on the other are drying up, and in the middle, everybody's getting dengue from the mosquitoes that are now swarming across the place. And some of this uh, concept about the justice deficit uh, came out at Copenhagen, mm. uh, but Copenhagen was a disaster. Why? Well, it, it wasn't a complete disaster. I mean, there were some interesting things that happened. We went into Copenhagen from 350.org with all this momentum. We'd just done this huge day of global action six weeks before that had seen 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries and had seen for the first time an environmental movement that was almost entirely poor, black, brown, Asian, and young, because that's what most of the people in the world are, you know. If you don't believe me, look at the 25,000 pictures in the Flickr account at 350.org, you know. We went into Copenhagen with a lot of momentum. We got 117 nations that signed on to this 350 target. That's the measurement in parts per million of CO2 that the scientists tell us is the most we can safely have in the atmosphere. It's quite a radical number because we're already past it. We need to go back to get to it. At any rate, 117 nations signed on. That was great. They were the wrong 117 nations. They were the poor nations, the deeply addicted nations like our own weren't yet ready to come to terms, you know. And so they scuttled the process, more or less. So Copenhagen, in a sense, fizzled because a lot of poor countries weren't willing to just play along. In the past, the U.S. had said, oh, here's the score do what, you know, go along with our plan and here's some aid, you know. Uh, This time people were saying, guys, you know, we need the aid and we clearly deserve it, but if we're underwater, there's not enough money in the world to fix our problem, you know. So we need you to cut your emissions. And the Obama administration wasn't really ready to hear that yet. Why do you think that is? Because, well, they're answer would be because Congress isn't yet ready to hear it, and Congress isn't yet ready to hear it because, you know, there's not enough movement and pressure to counteract the oil companies. But also, you know, Obama made the calculation that he wasn't going to spend much political capital on this. He had other things. What do you make of him coming out for offshore drilling? Well, uh, the best interpretation you could possibly put on it is that this is his gambit, to, you know, his sort of offer to try to somehow get the intransigent GOP, one or two of them, to vote for some kind of climate bill. Uh, the climate bill that's on offer apparently is so weak as to be whatever. Even if that was Obama's gambit, I think it was a kind of strange one. You don't really want to anti, you know, put all your chips in when you anti, uh, 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 
I'm worried. I think he's, you know, I think that it's becoming pretty clear that uh, uh, he's remarkably centrist on an awful lot of issues. And how do we pressure him then? How do we pressure Congress? I, I can't think of any way other than to build movements. Um, I wish there was some shortcut. I mean, if I had ExxonMobil's bank account, I could think of a bunch of ways, <laughs> you know. Uh, but lacking that, uh, we're relying on people's spirit and creativity and bodies and whatever. On, on October 10th this year at 350.org, we're having this thing we're calling a uh, global work party. And in thousands of places around the world, people will be putting up solar panels and digging community gardens and laying out bike paths. Not, Matt, because we think there's any hope of solving climate change one project at a time. There isn't. We want to send a pointed political message. We're getting to work. What about you? If I can climb up on the roof with a hammer in my hand and put up a solar panel, you can climb up on the floor of the Senate and do your damn job finally. You know, hammer out some legislation for us. Uh, uh, it, we're very tired of waiting decade after decade for people to address what clearly is the most difficult problem the world has ever faced and for which we have a unblemished bipartisan record of accomplishing nothing. One lesson to be learned about the media's reaction to the right-wing Tea Party protests might be that the corporate press have developed a newfound enthusiasm for citizen action. If so, this is a welcome development. Of course, if this were true, then other citizen movements would get the wall-to-wall Tea Party treatment as well. And that just doesn't seem to happen. Take the April 25th climate change rally in Washington, D.C. Now, most people would agree that this is not an abstract problem, unlike, say, the Tea Party's worries about the dawn of Obama's socialism in America. So when tens of thousands gathered to rally in support of climate action, what did the press make of it? Not much from what we can tell. Climate blogger Joe Rome noted that the hometown Washington Post covered the rally in the style section. On the national networks, ABC World News did a 60-word rip and read, and there wasn't much more to the media coverage than that. So maybe next time, climate protesters should figure out a way to work in references to fascism or Hitler. Apparently that that's what works. Part of your book here, Earth, Making a Life on a Tough New Planet, Bill, deals with uh, this question as to whether we can uh, 
grow green, grow our way green out of the problem, and you seem to think that's not possible. Well, we obviously need to put up a lot of windmills and solar panels. I've got them all over my roof, but the idea that we're simply going to substitute, you know, pull out the fossil fuel system, check in a bunch of windmills and continue on just as we are before is, I think, pretty delusional. Um, um, a, that's incredibly expensive and time-consuming transition, even if we really get to work on it, um, which I hope we do. Uh, but B, this stuff's different. It matters. You know, physics and chemistry and things matter. Uh, fossil fuels are particular stuff. It's concentrated in a few places. It's easy to transport. It's rich in BTUs. It led us to a kind of centralized series of, of systems, big coal-fired power plants, things like that. Renewable energy is very different. It's omnipresent but diffuse. There's some of it everywhere but not much of it, or not a you know, huge amount of it anywhere. So you have to adopt an exactly opposite strategy. You have to spread out. You know, we need a grid, an energy grid, that doesn't work like the old, like, broadcast TV thing with three big channels pouring stuff at us. It works like the Internet. Everybody putting stuff in, taking stuff out. My house, as I say, has solar panels on the roof. On a sunny day, I'm a utility. I fire electrons down the grid. That's Good because you can put ecologically benign technology to work, like a solar panel. But it's also good because it's much more resilient and less vulnerable than what we've got now. Uh, if some terrorist is determined to take out my solar panels, he can. He can put a ladder up and climb on my roof and break them with a hammer. Okay, But it doesn't wreck the grid. It doesn't spew deadly solar particles into the atmosphere. It's, you know, not that big a deal for anyone but me. We need, I guess what I'm saying is, just like we need a banking system that isn't too big to fail, we need an energy system and an agricultural system that isn't, in fact, not too big to fail. And we need those more, really, because in the end, food and energy are even more important than capital in how we order our lives. Bill McKibben, you talk about this uh, a local energy grid, kind mm -hmm. of like a local energy shed, like a local food yes. shed or local watershed. Uh, explain that a little more. Well, this is sort of what I've been describing. Engineers would call it distributed generation. Lots of people put, think of the farmer's market, the same analogy, you know. Uh, not one big Cargill or ADM bringing you all your food, but lots and lots of your neighbors and maybe you're bringing some yourself. Uh, uh, that's how we need to make energy work too. And you mentioned food, and there are a lot of exciting things happening mm. with the uh, farmer's markets, with community-supported agriculture, with the slow food movement. Uh, have you been surprised at how quickly that's taken off? Well, it's been very gratifying. I've, it's been fun to write about that over the years and play some small part in it. And it has taken off, and it's been very good to see. It, it won't go beyond, it won't become our mainstream food system until we do the thing that we have to do, which is put a price on carbon. That's the one sine qua known for making progress on energy, on food, in a big enough fashion to count. Once we do, once coal and gas and oil pay the freight for the damage they do in the atmosphere, then everybody will be going to the farmer's market, not just because it tastes a lot better, but because 
it'll become clear just how much incredible hidden subsidy there was to the fossil fuel industry. It'll be economically sensible, competitive. But that raises again the political question. Yes. You know, how do you get the political system to put a price on carbon? Yes. So part of that is building this movement that we describe, and part of it's being a little smart. So, you know, for instance, there's a bill in the Senate right now that's not getting much attention, probably because it's too smart for uh, real uh, uh, for Congress at the moment. It comes from two of our female senators, uh, Senator Cantwell, Democrat of Washington, and Senator Collins, uh, Susan Collins, uh, Republican of Maine. And it's a it's a called a cap and dividend bill. Here's how it would work. You'd put a cap on the price of uh, a cap on the amount of carbon you go in the atmosphere. Exxon, say, would have to go pay a hefty fee at auction each year for the right to introduce that carbon into the system. They would therefore raise the price of gasoline at the pump. It would go back to four dollars a gallon or whatever. That's good because that's the moment at which people suddenly realize, huh, I don't need a military vehicle in order to go get the groceries, you know. Um, but it, if it bankrupts people, it's not good. So what the other half of this bill would do is take all that money from Exxon, put it in a big pool, and cut every American a check every six months for their share. It'd be kind of like what happens in the socialist state of Alaska, where they write you a check every year for your share of the oil revenues. And does that bill have a chance of passing you then? Well, the bill that's going to come to the fore first is, a, you know, this uh, being written by Senators Kerry and Graham and Lieberman. And they took the already corporatized House bill of cap and trade and have turned it into, I mean, talk about the sausage making process. This thing is, you know, pure pork sausage, man, in every way. Uh, it's got so many gifts. It's like a huge Christmas stocking for coal and nuclear and offshore drilling. Lindsey Graham said not long ago, said, said, I'm all in favor of protecting the planet, but this bill is about energy independence. You know, I mean, they're not really even making much pretense anymore. But that's the bill that the serious guys talk about all the time. Basically, because in Washington right now to be serious means to uh, 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 concede everything to corporate interest before you even start. I'm speaking with a different kind of serious man here, Bill McKibben, who is the author of The End of Nature and Earth. Making a life on a tough new pa uh, planet. He's also founded the group 350.org that does great organizing around the world on this issue of, of global warming. Uh, you talk, Bill, about uh, changing our mindset in a way, and you elevate certain adjectives and adverbs. You talked a little bit ago about a couple of those being resilient, for instance, but uh, durable, sturdy, stable, hardy, robust is a list that you have in your book, and then you end with uh, lightly, carefully, gracefully. Uh, talk a little more about how we need to refashion the way we live along those lines. Well, you know how in the wake of the financial crisis and the collapse a couple of years ago, all of a sudden people were less worried about making sure that their uh, portfolios were growing and much more concerned about making sure they actually had enough 
to, you know, that they protected themselves. In a certain sense, that's the realization that's going to start dawning on us as the physical world begins the same kind of, uh, uh, runs into the same kind of hot water. Um, that's what we're going to need to start thinking about. What do I actually need? And one of the things we'll figure out that we actually need, need a lot, is much stronger ties to our communities. One of the things that fossil fuel has allowed us to do is become the first of our species to have no practical need of our neighbors for anything. Okay, And we've counted that as a plus. That sort of complete independence has been part of the recent American vision of ourselves. But it's a it's a bad bargain in any event. It's made us unhappy. Uh, uh, the, the lack of connection and community ties is the biggest reason that Americans report being far less satisfied with their lives than they were 50 years ago. The average American has half as many close friends as they did 50 years ago. Um, so we're going to need, for very practical reasons, to rebuild those psychological ties that comprise a community. Uh, we'll need each other for things like food and energy. And in the process, we'll get at least a partial silver lining from what's going to be a wrenching transition. We talked about farmer's markets a minute ago. The best thing about a farmer's market isn't the cost of the food. It isn't the quality of the food. It isn't the fact that it's more ecologically sound. The best thing about a farmer's market is when a pair of sociologists followed shoppers there a few years ago. They found that that the average visitor, the average shopper was having 10 times more conversations than the average shopper at the supermarket. Okay. That's the real difference. It's a, and, and of course, we pride ourselves on having invented this chic new thing, the farmer's market. This is how everybody shopped for food for all of human history until 70 years ago and 80% of the planet still does. You yeah, know? So it's the way a lot of people still shop yeah. around the world. You recognize though that community uh, sometimes can be stifling. And so you have a surprise uh, kind of hero uh, uh, in the book. That's right. Uh, I think the one great wild card we have going for us, the one thing that's breaking in our favor, is the invention of the Internet. And I think for the first time, it's really possible to imagine, as someone who's lived all my life in small communities, uh, possible to imagine staying home and having a very local economic life and at the same time remaining very open and very connected to a larger world. Uh, uh, and that's you know, the window of the Internet always open for new ideas to blow in and old prejudices to get blown out uh, so that small and local doesn't need to mean parochial anymore. Uh, that's a good thing that we're going to have to rely on. You can travel, you can do, I read the other day, a thousand Google searches for the amount of energy it takes you to drive half a mile. Okay, We're going to have to figure out how to do a lot of our traveling via Google, and that's okay. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. 
If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. I want to talk about, you know, some of these. There's a there's a whole bunch of stories that are similar, um, and it's about the not denial of, of science, the unholy combination between the anti-Darwinists, the people who don't believe in evolution, uh, and the people who don't believe in global warming. People, in, in other words, who don't believe in rational thought, in enlightenment, in, in the scientific method, or in, in the capacity to discern the truth. The Darwin foes, which have been organized in this country since the Scopes trial, um, have, are now mobilizing to make sure that global warming is not treated in, taught in schools in Louisiana, passed a 2008 law that it says, says the Dar- State Board of, that yeah, said, run that by me again. Run that it by says me. the State Board of Education may assist teachers in, in promoting critical thinking on those subjects of evolution and global warming, critical thinking. Oklahoma introduced a bill with similar goals in 2009, and a number of other states, South Dakota and others, South Dakota passed a resolution for calling for, quote, balanced teaching of global warming in public schools, saying that carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, this is in quotes, but rather a highly beneficial ingredient for all plant life. These same people are against the teaching of the Big Bang Theory, you know, this is Copernicus. Well, it's anti-intellectual, this is, anti-intellectualism is, is alive and well in America let's, right let's, now. Let's burn Copernicus. Fifteen states have polluter-driven resolutions, have passed polluter-driven resolutions to deny global warming. Uh, Alabama, Utah, a number of other states have now Alaska. And, and these are driven by a, a group called ALEC, which I have a lot of experience with. It's called the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a group that's paid for by the big polluters. They've infiltrated. They give parties and golf outings for state legislatures, and they give tremendous amounts of money to get their own slates of legislatures. And it's all about the corporate control of America. That's what ALEC is about, about killing unions, about destroying environmental laws, destroying public safety laws, and letting corporations run our country. And this is one of their newest... Um, but they're it, tapping into the stupid rage. They're, I mean, they're tapping right? into the the anti-Darwin movement because that brings in the the real village idiots. The the anti-global warming because that brings in more of them. And, and, and it certainly is an attraction for the what you know what you would call dominion religion, isn't it? I mean, it's... A, right, like but a, it, you know, the, the scary thing is that these... Crackpots have always been around, but now they have corporate money. There's this unholy alliance between Exxon. You know, Exxon is funding these people, so all of a sudden they have a bullhorn. They have Fox News, you know, which is a which is a global warming denier, which also, you know, those guys are up there expressing doubts about evolution and all this other kind of stuff. Mm. They've also got the Chamber of Commerce, which is now bringing a lawsuit against the United States government that's been joined by uh, three governors and a whole bunch of attorney generals, including Governor Rick Perry of Texas, 
who say that global warming is based on tainted, quote, based on tainted data of an agenda-driven international paddle. All paid for by corporate America. I mean, this is, this, all this, this big movement uh, is all paid for by corporate America. I mean, that's, that's where this story lands. Bobby, let me tell you, before you get off this, this Darwin, uh, ev- this evolution issue, the top homeschool text, so if, you, if you're a homeschooler, you're going to your textbook is going to tell you that that Darwin evolution is a fraud. Interesting thing that's developing is that the kids that have been homeschooled when they go off to college and they find out that their textbook that said that Darwin was a fraud that it's you know that the Christian worldwide view is the only you know reality view out there that they should follow once they once they go to college and they learn that Darwin, that evolution really does take place, their reaction is, you lied to me, Mom. You lied to me, Dad. You've lied to me about this. You've lied to me about it. And what it does is it undermines their belief in a lot of things. And that's that's the sad part of this story along with – I mean, there's a lot of parts, sad parts of the story. The sad part is that people can be so friggin' stupid well, that they can't even read. Well, one of the sad parts and, is that one of the things that happened after Sputnik is that there was a huge national commitment – educating our children in science because of that starting in elementary school grade school and so on and our generation benefited from that there was this national effort in in colleges and we had the leading colleges science schools engineering schools chemistry physics all came out of the united states everybody in the world wanted to come to the united states to get science education because we said hey this is a national security issue well, now that concern, that connection has fallen by the wayside, and the Republican Party has adopted this thing that science is an elitist, you know, conspiracy. Well, what do you and, think, and Bobby? Even, what, what even are... the Catholic Church, you know, um, they, you've got, we've now got this, this Pope, you know, Pope Benedict, who's, uh, who has, you know, my sister met with him the other day and, you know, tried to talk to him about this, but my sister Carrie, who's a human rights advocate, 20 million people dying a year in Africa because they, they could be saved by the use of condoms. Mm. And he went to Africa and said that there is no, that there's no scientific support to the idea that condoms can, can help prevent AIDS. The same Pope, Pope Benedict, has, has expressed, has said, that the church needs to rethink its position on evolution. Since 1929, the Catholic Church has said that the theory of evolution is consistent with Catholic beliefs. I grew up in a very kind of rigid Catholic society, for which I'm very grateful for the Catholic edu- education I, I got. But, you know, Catholics were not fundamentalists. They were not doctrinaire. They were, you know, they didn't believe in that one book had all the answers. And Catholics said it's part of the Catholic tradition. You look at the lives of the saints. You look at the examples of other people. You look at rational thought that came from the Jesuits. You look at the gospels of Christ, the commitment to the poor, the tremendous commitment to public education and to college education in the Catholic Church and to good science and all of this. And, and you have to put all that together. It's not just all the knowledge isn't just in one book. And, and Catholics were even discouraged when I was a kid and forever before that from reading the Bible because they said that's not the whole thing. Science is real. Science, the factor is science. Science is real. 
science is real. Contrary to conventional belief, as the climate warms and growing seasons lengthen, subalpine forests are likely to soak up less carbon dioxide, according to a new University of Colorado at Boulder study. As a result, more of the greenhouse gas will be left to concentrate in the atmosphere. Our findings contradict studies of other ecosystems that conclude longer growing seasons actually increase plant carbon uptake, says Jia Hu, who conducted the research. The study will be published in the Journal of the Global Climate, Global Change Biology. Who found, I know, who found that while smaller spring snowpack tended to advance the onset of spring and extend the growing season, it also reduced the amount of water available to forests later in the summer and fall. The water-stressed trees were then less effective in converting CO2 into biomass. Summer rains were unable to make up the difference, he says. Snow is much more effective than rain in delivering water to these forests. If a warmer climate brings more rain, this won't offset the carbon uptake potential being lost due to declining snowpack. A study by the University... This is the good news file now, though, ladies and gentlemen. A study by the University of Exeter provides the first evidence that coral reefs can recover from the devastating effects of climate change. Why? This is such good news. Published in the uh, journal Public Library of Science, one, the research shows for the first time that coral reefs located in marine reserves can recover from the impacts of global warming. Increases in ocean surface water temperatures subject coral reefs to stresses that lead quickly to mass bleaching. The problem is intensified by ocean acidification. Researchers conducted surveys of 10 sites of reefs that were severely damaged by bleaching and then a hurricane. But at the beginning of the study, the reefs had an average of 7% coral cover. By the end of the project, coral cover in protected areas had increased by an average of 19%, while reefs in non-protected areas showed no recovery. In order to protect reefs in the long term, says one of the researchers, we need radical action to reduce CO2 emissions. However, our research shows that local action to reduce the effects of fishing can contribute meaningfully to the fate of reefs. The reserve allowed the number of parrot fishes to increase, and because parrot fish eat seaweeds, the corals could grow freely without being swamped by weeds. There you go. Those damn parrot fish. Plants are incredibly temperature sensitive. Oh, and can perceive changes of as little as one degree Celsius. A report in the January 8th issue of the journal Cell shows how they not only feel the temperature rise, but also coordinate an appropriate response, activating hundreds of genes and deactivating others. The findings may help to explain how plants will respond in the face of climate change and offer scientists new leads in the quest to create crop plants better able to withstand high temperature stress, according to the researchers. Polar bears. What about the polar bears, you ask? A long-term study showing the changes in habitat associations of polar bears in response to sea ice conditions in the southern Beaufort Sea has implications for polar bear management in Alaska. I'd like to be part of polar bear management as, a part, as opposed to polar bear workforce. Karen Rode, a polar bear biologist with Fish and Wildlife Service, says data collected between 79 and 2005 show that polar bears in the region are occurring more frequently on land and in open water and less frequently on ice during the fall. This means there are increased chances for human-bear interaction. You watch it now. You can't deny that they live so fine. Yeah, I want to be a polar bear, that's me. Spend all day swimming on your back. 
in water clear and blue. I don't much care for fish, but maybe as a snack. Yeah, I want to be a polar bear, it's true. Wouldn't want to be a giraffe, cause they can't stop and smell the roses. Wouldn't want to be a rat, always running in a maze. No elephants, frogs, or pigs, cause they all have funny noses. And I wouldn't want to be a fly, cause they only live by days. Back to the point of being a polar bear. Al Gore must come out with a sequel to his movie about climate change and call it An Inconvenient Truth 2. What the fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> I say this because a bunch of depressing new surveys reveal that people in droves are starting to believe that global warming is a hoax. And this time, it's not just us. You know, people are always accusing me of hating America and calling it stupid, so tonight I'd like to take a few moments to hate England and call it stupid. <laughs> because now the Brits don't believe in global warming either. I thought they were smarter than that. This is the home of Newton and Darwin. I can't believe we let these people build our exploding oil platforms. <laughs> and... Even scarier is why people have stopped thinking global warming is real. One major reason, pollsters say, is we had a very cold, snowy winter. Which is like saying the sun might not be real because last night it got dark. <laughs> and my car is not real because I can't find my keys. And that's the problem with our obsession, to always see two sides of every issue equally, especially when one side has a lot of money. It means we have to pretend there are always two truths, and the side that doesn't know anything has something to say. On this side of the debate, every scientist in the world. On the other, Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> there is no debate here. It's just scientists versus non-scientists. And since the topic is science, the non-scientists don't get a vote. We... We shouldn't decide everything by polling the masses. This is the fallacy called argumentum ad numerum, the idea that something is true because great numbers believe it, as in, eat shit. 20 trillion flies can't be wrong. <laughs> or take this recent headline. TV weathercasters divided on global warming. Who gives a shit? <laughs> My TV weathercaster is a bimbo with big tits who used to be on a soap opera on Telemundo. <laughs> Mainstream media, could you please stop pitting the ignorant versus the educated and framing it as a debate? The other day... <laughs> the other day, I saw a professor from the Union of Concerned Scientists face off against a distinguished expert on tea partying... <laughs> ...whose brilliant analysis, recently published in the New England Journal of Grasping at Straws... 
was that we shouldn't teach climate science in schools because kids find it scary. As they should. I hope they're peeing in their pants. Because the last decade, year, and month are all the hottest on record. And then there's the floods, the killing of the oceans, Category 5 hurricanes, giant wildfires, the vanishing water supply. You know, the little things. And yet deniers say it's just a theory, as is gravity. You know, for progress to happen, certain things have to become not an issue anymore. So we can go on to the next issue. Evolution was an issue until overwhelming consensus may, among scientists made it not an issue. When I was six years old, it was an issue how babies were born. There were conflicting theories. <laughs> there was no consensus. Some thought a stork brought babies. <laughs> Others contended you bought them at the hospital. The Catholic boys said the Holy Ghost brought them. And one kid said that girls had sort of a, as he described it, flap in front, and that men put their penises into it. This seemed the least likely. <laughs> And yet, by the time we had all reached age 11, even though we still, none of us had actually seen the flap, the consensus of opinion was overwhelming for the penis-vagina theory. It was no longer an issue. Devastating worldwide climate change is happening. Whether you phone in for it or not, you can't vote for rain. What's real is what's real. And like it or not, no one can change the nature of reality. Thanks for listening, everyone. So what I'm going to try to do is give you the super condensed version of this idea that I've been meaning to talk to you about for a while and it's this it's a topic that I could easily spend 30 minutes uninterrupted talking about uh, but but I'm going to try to keep it short and the basic thesis for for what I'm talking about is why is living sustainably in a way that is congruent with uh, treating the earth well and so forth uh, related to climate change as this show was about how is that like a haiku. Now, I'm going to start with a couple of things. First of all, uh, I'm, I'm going to say that income and comfort are very much related. Uh, I, I think you'll kind of naturally see the connection between those two. The higher your income, the higher your potential comfort level. Secondly, I'm going to lay out there as a fact that uh, greater income past a certain point does not equate to greater happiness. So if you're making between zero and somewhere in the range of like $40,000 a year and you live in America, then if you made more money than that, your happiness level would probably go up. But if you already make more than $40,000 a year, you know, $50,000 in that neighborhood as an individual, then you're pretty comfortable. You got everything taken care of. You got a place to live. You got food. You got clothing. You got entertainment and so forth, you're pretty well taken care of. If you make more money, you may be more comfortable, but I would argue your happiness level would not actually go up. 
Now I'm going to shift gears for a second and say that, uh, you know, so what is it about haiku that makes them unique and uh, creative? What is it about a haiku that, that forces a person to be creative? It's, it's the restrictive nature of the structure of the poem. And, uh, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I don't remember what it is, but it's like what, three, five, three syllables, something like that, or five, seven, five. Anyways, it, it has a structure that has to be followed. Otherwise, it isn't a haiku anymore. And so if you want to write one, you can't just put some words on a page that kind of sound nice together and, and say something profound. That's not enough. You have to be more creative than that and say what you want to say in such a way so that it fits the structure. You're restricted in that way. And I would argue that being forced to be creative in that way uh, makes us happier. I think, I think that when we are given restrictions that we have to work within and we are forced to solve whatever problems we're given with restrictions, I think that that is much more satisfying. I think it's a more satisfying life to lead if we have restrictions in that way that we have to work around. So taking it to like a, a broader question about, you know, life in general, I, you know, th this is kind of a broad question that gets asked and is almost always answered in the same way. If you have the choice between having everything you ever wanted and never having to work for it or having to work and struggle and not always get everything you want, but get some of the things you want uh, after having worked hard for them, which would you rather do? And, and I think pretty much everyone answers that they would much rather do the work because they recognize that if they're given everything they've ever wanted without working for it, then they would lose all appreciation for it and, and it wouldn't make them happy anyway. So what's the point of doing things that's not going to make you happy? So let's bring that all the way back around to comparing that to leading a sustainable life that's kind of better for, honestly, better for yourself and for the planet. So I, I laid all of that groundwork to to show that I'm not the type of person to uh, to make the suggestion that everyone in the world should voluntarily make themselves less comfortable because we would all be better off for it. I mean, it's a nice idea. I think that has a, a slight ring of communism to it. Like communism, like oh, it's kind of a nice idea. It just goes completely contrary to human nature and can never, ever, ever possibly work in real life. And and so to say that uh, everyone uh, in the world today living in a first world country, we should all voluntarily make ourselves less comfortable um, because we would all be better off. It's, it's a really nice idea. I wish people would do that, but it just doesn't work that way. And so what I'm actually talking about is the fact that I believe, I truly believe this because I'm living it and recognizing it in my own life. I believe that doing things that make you less comfortable very, very often actually make you a happier person because the opposite is true of if you're given everything you want uh, without working for it, then, well, that doesn't make you happy. And I think that the opposite of that is true. If you have to work a little bit harder than you're used to, then really small things in life can make you really happy. So a few years ago, I sold my car and haven't owned one since, and I've grown accustomed to not having one. And that's kind of the restriction of the haiku. I, I'm restricted in by not having a car. So, uh, you know, when I go outside, weather has an impact on me, you know, like maybe you don't think about that if you're driving a car because you're completely protected in a little cocoon and you don't have to worry about the weather, but I do. And when I go shopping, I'm restricted as to 
how much I'm going to buy by how much I can carry. So I actually am a little bit more thoughtful in uh, in the things that I buy because uh, you know I have these natural restrictions to deal with. So what ends up happening is I only buy things I really, really want and I end up not making frivolous purchases at the store that way. So as I say, th this is something I can talk about for about 30 minutes or more uninterrupted. Uh, I've got a lot to say about it, but I'm going to keep it short and, and basically say that uh, my, you know my argument on this very often comes back to uh, cars because that's it's it's the starkest difference that I can see in in modern life. The car is the thing uh, more than anything else that I have ever thought about uh, changes a person from someone who is uh, connected to their surroundings and mindful of their actions and can transform someone into someone who is for lack of a better word, thoughtless, that you can go out and you can, you know, without a thought, you can go drive 100 miles. Without a thought, you can, you know, go anywhere you want. Uh, you can, you know, walk out your door, do anything you want in, in your town or city, and then and come back and then do it again that same day. I mean, it, it, it makes us uh, incredibly thoughtless consumers, consumers of the gas it takes to use to, to drive the car. But, uh, but you can be really thoughtless in, in how you spend your time and what you do and what you buy and all of those things. So, uh, so basically what I'm saying is um, I'm making the argument that people should uh, drive less at all costs and avoid owning a car if at all possible. There are, there are huge ways to do it. Uh, I want to mention Zipcar. If you live in a major city, uh, frankly, if you don't live in a major city, I suggest you move. But if you do live in a major city, there's a very good chance that you can uh, join a car sharing program so you don't have to own your own car. You can just share cars. Um, and so check out Zipcar.com for something like that. And then secondarily, I want to mention uh, WalkScore.com. This is another, it's a great resource and I don't want any listener of this show to move from where they are to a new place again without checking out walkscore.com. You just put in any address, uh, at, at least in the United States, put in any address and it'll give you a score based on what's, uh, what's around that address and how easy it is to live in a place as a walker. Or cyclist is even better. I, I ride my bike pretty much everywhere I go. So on a scale of 1 to 100, it'll give you an idea of, uh, of how walkable your area is. Currently, I, I, as I mentioned, I've moved to Chicago recently. My walk score now is 98. And I've never been happier. <laughs> I, I haven't uh, ridden in a car since I got here. And uh, I walk and pick up all my groceries. I walk everywhere I go, if, if not uh, ride a bike. And uh, I can absolutely say from personal experience as a person who used to own a car and drove everywhere they went because uh, I lived in the suburbs to now a person who lives in a city and abhors the idea of having to get in a car for any reason, uh, I can say it's made me a much, much, much happier person uh, and I highly recommend it. And then of course it's better for the environment as well. It's a win-win for everybody.
Okay, so I'll end it there. I want to thank a couple of members. Uh, Sadie J signed up for a full year membership starting uh, way back in uh, November, November 22nd. Uh, huge thanks to uh, to Sadie. And Robert N signed up for his monthly membership starting on February 19th and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Robert, Sadie, all the members, all the donors. You guys make it possible. To stay connected to the show between episodes, please check us out on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, those are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the support of members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Shining shoes